Hello, and welcome to All Things Marketing and Education. My name is Ilana Leone, and I've devoted my career to helping education brands build their brand awareness and engagement. Each week, I sit down with educators, edtech entrepreneurs, and experts in educational marketing and community building. All of them will share their successes and failures using social media, inbound marketing or content marketing, and community building. I'm excited to guide you on your journey to transform your marketing efforts into something that provides consistent value and ultimately improves the lives of your audience. And now, let's jump right into today's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of All Things Marketing and Education. In this episode, I sat down with Henry J. Turner. He is an award-winning high school principal. He's an author. He's a nationally renowned speaker. And he's just an overall good human. Very inspiring dude. During this episode, I asked Henry a few questions about his newly released book, which we're going to talk about in detail. It's all about changing the narrative. So the title is Change the Narrative, How to Foster an Anti-Racist Culture in Your School. Henry talks about systematic racism, setting firm boundaries in anti-racist spaces, what you as an ed leader can do in this space, and even as an educator. And if you're working in the field of ed tech, what can you do? How can you be aware of all of these trends and best practices? So before we get into this really good conversation, I want to introduce Henry a bit more properly. Those of you know, when I talk about educators or anyone involved in the school systems, they are so friggin' humble. So I want to shine and make them embarrassed about what an awesome person they are. So bear with me just for a second. I personally met Henry at an ASDD meetup. So ASDD is a big annual conference, one of the better ones. I really enjoy it about innovation and education. Every year they have themes. Check it out. We'll put it in the show notes as well. But I met Henry in 2014. And at the time, he said, you know, the first time I met you, Alana, I was overwhelmed. There were so many people with my biggest national conference. And it was so overwhelming, even for me, that we kind of just lost track of each other. But I found a tweet and he was so excited to meet me. And I said, oh, my gosh, this is really cool to hear what you're doing in your school system. So we met again in person, but continued that conversation on Twitter. A little bit about Henry. Henry was named the 2020 K-12 Principal of the Year by K-12 Dives. That is an awesome honor. And you can see why he is an award-winning principal when he begins to talk about his passion and his experience. He, Like I said, he is the author of his newly released book, Change the Narrative. He co-authored that. And as a national speaker, he shares his experience as what it means to be an innovative instructional leader, He is a passionate advocate. He's committed to anti-racist educators and organizational leaders. Henry works collaboratively with educators, leaders, and communities on how to create a culture that commits to diversity and equity and inclusion. How does he empower voices and address economic and racial disparities? You are going to hear from this man. He is super passionate about it. I am so excited to get the conversation started. Henry, welcome to All Things Marketing and Education. We are so excited to have you here, share your wisdom, share your time. I know you're about to go on vacation, so this is an exciting way to propel you into that. Welcome to the show. 
Thanks so much for having me. I'm I'm really excited to chat with you and and, and being here. Yeah, and it, we were just talking before the show, but in this world of people kind of really passionate about education, it becomes insular. It becomes a little smaller because we end up like passing each other by or seeing each other. And we met initially in 2014, very briefly at the ASCD tweet up thing. Yep. And I remember you saying, it's not our first time meeting. I'm like, oh my gosh, he's bright. It's been a long, long time. But then I looked at your book and all of the people that have endorsed your book, I'm like, oh, awesome. Like, it's just this, this beautiful people, like this culture of people making a change in education that support each other. Mm. And that just, I don't know, gave me all the warm fuzzies to see all the people <laughs> I knew that were endorsing your book too. Well, I appreciate that. I, 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 I'm, I'm humbled by the support that we've gotten for the book. And I think that when I first met you, that that was really early in my journey of kind of, of going to national conferences. And, and, you know, it's to me now, it's like going back home when mm-hmm. I go to these national conferences, because it's like you get to see people who are going through the same fight, like you said, and, and you know, you don't see for, for years and sometimes even longer than that. And like, it's just so, so nice to re- re- reconnect. So I appreciate that we have that, we have that moment for sure. Yeah, I always tell people, especially because of ISTE and stuff is like, it's like I grew up with these folks that are so inspiring and, and on the same path with me and care about the same things in education. And it's just uh, sometimes my only time once a year, or once every couple of years to see these folks. And there's big hugs, there's smiles, there's catch up. How can we collaborate? It, it's all the same. Totally agree. It's, it's interesting because I, a couple of days ago, I was listening to business podcaster who was talking about that your you know social social media marketing needs to be i think he called it hand-to-hand combat of being of getting your message out there and you know i think in the education world you know maybe sometimes it feels that way that you really have to sort of like fight to get your voice out there but the reality is that everyone is so supportive of each other and i just i have i don't i don't feel that experience our ed world i feel like people are are like you said, super collaborative, and you know it's, it can feel isolating, particularly when you're when you're by yourself or like during those, you know, Sunday nights of writing your your blog posts. But when you really get to see people, it's amazing how supportive people are of each other and getting their voices out there and just sort of checking in on each other. Yeah, I mean that's how I fell in love with like really just being a marketer in ed tech. Because being a marketer in ed tech, it's very different than sure. it, like if I'm going into consumer products and selling shoes or in media. It, it's refreshing into the point where you talked about educators really wanting to connect and share and not going with the first intent of, I need to promote my stuff or I need to go in combat. Combat would be the last word I would <laughs> media which some people think of, right? Because they're like, I need to defend myself. But educators, if you haven't been in the scene on social media, is they will uphold you to a, like a code of being respectful and professional. Mm-hmm. And I know that's a little hard with the decaying of Twitter right now, but in general, that happens. It happens in all virtual networks. And that authenticity of, I want to share, I want to help, I want to connect, I need help, is what drew me to it. And I don't think I could market anywhere else because it's just, it feels, it's meaningful. It's not like, all right, let me get your attention for this product. <laughs> Definitely. I think that the best, well, some of the best advice that I got from a mentor of mine was that 
that in, in education, it's never business. It's always personal. We're, we are mission-driven. We do mission-driven work. And so we all have different opinions about how to do this work, right? Which makes it exciting. But at the same time is that, you know, you have to be a human-focused person in order to, to be successful in this, in this work. And I think that's true of, you know, whether you're an administrator or whether you're, you know, a, a company supporting a school that you have to be mission-driven because educators and kids see right through through you when 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 that's not your core. Yeah, and one of the things we focus on in our agency is the, the key word is relationships. Mm-hmm. How do we create relationships in education? And even though that's not something that a, a typical marketing director or an executive C-suite would say, here's my budget for relationships. They say, here's my budget for lead gen. We believe in relationships in education because they are so powerful. They are so authentic. And, and that's what you end up doing if you do it well in terms of social media and content and community. But we're digressing because we have so much awesome things to talk about. I'd love to get into your book. So you recently wrote the book. Was it a, a year ago at this point now? Yeah, a little over a year ago, 2022. Yeah, it's called Change the Narrative, How to Foster an Anti-Racist Culture in Your School. And you co-wrote it with Kathy Lopes. So like, tell me about this journey because you didn't just say, all right, I'm going to write a book on how to change the narrative. What was your journey coming towards this book and saying, you know what, a book I think might really help solidify and give some people some answers, open up the dialogue and have some actual practical strategies. How did you get to that point? Because I think this is your first book. Right. This is, yeah, this is my first. This is my first book. You know, I, there's two ways of answering. One is that this is a life. This has been my lifelong journey as a person of color who grew up in a majority white community. You know, my learning how to advocate for myself, and then also learning. You know, my passion to become an educator, so that students who are who you know who are traditionally marginalized feel like they have a voice in school. And how do we as educators help create that? Has been my life. My life's work. And as a principal, I've had in two different high schools, this is my going into my eighth year in this school, having experiences where hate incidents occurred and also where there was the need helping the school be a place to stand up for, for all kids. And so that's been at my core. So in, in 2020, when the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd occurred, and there was a lot of self-reflection among educators of like, what? can I do recognizing that for some, for the first time, recognizing that systemic racism existed in their school, just proportionality existed in their school. And I had been, you know, I had the experience as a school leader of of seeing some success, seeing some progress and what it takes. My passion is the change process, how to help organizations to change so that it's more um, in line with, with its core values and its mission. And so I started to really write about the change process and leadership from that perspective. And, and there's a lot of books around DEI that's about your own self-work. You know, how do you help a classroom or how do you do your own work, your own journey as a, as, a, as, a, as a person or as an educator? But there really isn't anything out there about what is it, how do you lead this work? How do you get other people to do this kind of work in your organization or in your school? And so... That's what uh, a lot of people started coming, a lot of school leaders started reaching out to me during that time. And I felt like it was, you know, this was, this was the right time to, to start writing. The book was also some good therapy for me during COVID, during a very tough time as a school leader. 
And, you know, what I learned during the first part of that process was just how ambitious of a project I had taken on and got some good advice from, from a friend who's written a book to take on co-author. I think that was probably the best decision that I made because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a leader who's passionate about the change process. And Kathy is a social worker who cares about who, you know, not that I don't care about people, but she is very people focused. Right? And so meshing our two skill sets, I think made it much more practical and uh, applicable for, for leaders. So whether you're an organizational leader, I think it works. I think it, you know, business leader, I think you can learn things from there. If you're a school leader, you'll learn things in there. And if you're a classroom teacher, you'll, you'll learn. Yeah. And even in the world of, of ed tech too, say if I go in with the lens of, wow, these are what my target audience and, you know, my buyers and my users, these are, this is the things that they, they're working towards. These are some of their challenges. And I always talk to them about how can we work with you as a partner, be value-based. Let's actually work and give you some, like, always I come to it, like, what are your challenges? Not here's my product. Right. And really important to know that like this is something that you're gonna always be fighting for. This is something that's always gonna have some nooks and crannies and oh, I didn't think of that. And now there's this new thing and how did this AI affect this and all of this stuff, right? So definitely. I had a you know, as when I as I've been working with schools, there is particularly around that 2020, 2021 school years, a number of schools would say, Well, school equity is part of our school improvement plan for this year. We want to get it done by, you know, June of 2021. And it's, they, well, how did that work out? And they, we're exhausted. We don't feel like we made any progress. So to your point is that this is lifelong work. You know, you're not going to solve racism in a year, right? And we have to think of this as systemically and, and how to scale our work. And so there are small ways, which I can certainly talk about, of how to begin this work. And then, you know, there are more complex ways to be to, to, to this work think that for school leaders who are really thinking strategically that they need, they are asking right now, how do I begin? And mm-hmm. I think that that's a critical question for a lot, for, again, for those of us who support them and for companies to recognize that for a lot of schools, some range of DEI work is, is, is emerging as a core value for a lot of school leaders. And so to support them is critical and recognize that it's not just a one-year initiative, that it's really the foundation of the work that they're doing. Yeah. And so in a minute, I'm going to ask you to get into those practical ways because like, I think my biggest question is, how do I get started? This mm-hmm. feels overwhelming. We had Alex Chevron come on and she talked about like trauma-informed education. Mm-hmm. And to that end, it was also like, how do I get started? This is heavy. But one of the small things I can do as an educator but as a school leader, what are the other things? So we get get into that in a second. But the one thing I just want to mention is sometimes when we think about something, we like to parse it out as a goal. Like you said, let's eliminate racism in a year. And as a marketer, we're very linear, linear oriented. Okay, I can get this many impressions. I can do all of these things. As an educator, I'm going to bookmark. I got a plan. I got things organized. And I get frustrated when things go backwards sometimes and I'm not making progress, but maybe going backwards is part of the progress, right? Mm -hmm. I just want to note that those are two very, like the people that we're talking about have this linear mindset, but as community builders, we know that it's, 
It's a co-movement. You're co-designing. It does not work if it does not work with your community, either your school community, your educators, your parents, your leaders. So you're co-creating with them. And with that, you're going to have lots of stumble. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to point that out for because it's something that my audience struggles with at times too is, gosh, you know, community, building community and movements is really hard. Yes, because you all are moving together and co-creating, making sure it meets all your needs. 100%. And you know, I think it, in the world of smart goals and, you know, and OKRs that we have to recognize that vision setting is also really critical as well. And so that, you know, if our goal is to eliminate disproportionality in our school, right, that is not going to be a, a one year plan, right? There, there needs to, that's your, that's your overarching objective. That's your vision. The changes that you're thinking about need to connect to that, right? That's the strategic planning and the scaling. And, you know, there is some ideas that, you know, like grading, for example, is a really complex topic. And yet there are some ideas I think school leaders have said, well, that seems really, you know, really interesting. Let's get into that work right away. Or they see the disproportionality and they want to do really big things right away. And what happens is not only the pushback, which we expect, but also they're, they, they're not prepared for that level of change. So starting small, right? Starting in ways where people can recognize where your values are. They can see the low-hanging fruit that is working to help kids to feel seen and feel connected in your school. And then looking at you know, structural change, looking at transformative change you know, down the road is, is I think, the right, the right strategy to have. Yeah, I'm hearing scaffolding, finding those mini wins to get people on board. (laughs) I think instructional coaches do that well, too. It's like, what's going to make you happy? And like, even though you don't think that's awesome, get them on board with a mini win, scaffold it so it's not so intense and jarring, right? And bring them on board, co-create with them. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, I always talk about, in our book, we talk about this, this change game that we, that I, that we use in the, the, the grad program that I, that I work in for aspiring principals. And it's based on Peter Senge's work. And, you know, there's all these different actions that you can take to try to change the culture, right? And ultimately in this game, what you learn is that the individual conversation to your point on relationships, those individual conversations moves the needle. Uh, that leads you to continually having those small conversations because people need to see how they fit into the culture and and how they fit into the change, right? And how that change impacts them. And mm-hmm. often change feels like a loss to people. So some people are going to resist. Some people are never going to move, but people aren't going to move unless they see how it affects them personally. So that takes time. In the school of mine where you know we have over 2,000 students and 300 teachers, like to get a bunch of individuals to be able to, to move and understand a change takes, takes years. So ironically, you're saying to almost scale change and make it to, to create this momentum to eventually get a bigger movement around it, you have to start small and you have to do unscalable things to quote unquote scale. And I'm using the word scale just because I feel like in ed tech, they use that a lot of like, all right, we got to make sure that we can do things at scale that eventually apply to more people and not, and not these one-on-one. But relationships, like you said, we have to do the unscalable to eventually reach more people. I think that, I think that, I think scale is the right word. And you know, my, so I, 
uh, my wife is in a tech company, my, my friends who are in tech companies and, you know, and their best innovations, right, are whether they are human focused innovations or tech focused innovations are thinking of using the design thinking process to scale, right? And the th- same thing is true in the, in the school world as well. It's like a teacher needs to try out an instructional strategy and then they can build it and implement it on a more regular basis. And so, and this work is just so hard, right? Our personal selves have, you know, are connected to culture, connected to race. And so therefore, you know, we bring our own history into this work. And sometimes that can be traumatizing. Sometimes it can be make a change more complicated. And so therefore, you know, we need to be in an environment where we can make mistakes. And I often say that sometimes the culture breakers in our school communities are those who are trying to win the anti-racist Olympics, the people who are, you know, providing, you know, who are judging, you know, anyone who says the wrong thing the wrong way or, you know, is, you know, or makes some sort of you know, mistake, small or large. And we have to recognize that the people who are in our school are the people who are part of our community. And so we need to think about how to help them to grow and improve as opposed to just castigating them as, you know, as someone who's inferior or, or bad or, you know, never going to, never going to grow. Yeah. I, I had Jose Vilson on our podcast and, and he is the founder of the Educolor movement, talks a lot about math and its intersection with racism and social justice and all sorts of things. And he talked about like, you cannot, can't always shy away from those difficult conversations because if we're so afraid we're going to say the wrong thing or we're just, don't have the energy to have those difficult conversations, we never move forward in that progress. So how do we create a safe enough space that we begin to have these conversations? So I want to get into the little things you talked about, though, about what, what are some things from a leadership perspective or a, a, I'm an educator and I'm interested. This is something on my to-do list for this school year, but I have nowhere to start and it feels overwhelming. And I know the book goes into lots of things, but can you tease out some things that are resonating with your readers? Yeah, for sure. So I, I always say that the easiest thing that we've ever did in our school was that we used our student information system and our student learning system and gave student the permission, student the permission to write their name phonetically or to record their, their name so that on day one, teacher, the stu- teachers can say the names, their na- the students' names correctly. And that is an easy way that helps students to feel seen, to feel heard in their classroom. And there is not one person who's going to go to a school committee meeting criticizing the school for doing that, right? Like that is a, a DEI-focused, anti-racist way of making sure that students feel included. And it's something that's good for all kids. And that is a learning lesson that anti-racist work is good for all kids. And so starting with a small step like that is a great strategy. I also think that for school leaders, how do we think about some of the instructional strategies that we're trying to implement in our school are great strategies as well. So UDL, for example, can be an anti-racist instructional strategy so long as we are using a culturally responsive mindset to make sure that all students feel included, right? So how do we build relationships on day one through 180 
with our students. How do we get to know who they are? What is their background? What is their what are their identities? What are the ways in which they feel celebrated and they feel successful? What are the ways in which they feel they don't feel successful or they feel isolated, right? And the more that as we as educators can understand that and see how we can bring their culture into our classroom and their strengths from their cultures into our classroom so that they are successful, the more successful those students will be. And then we can use UDL strategies. You can use different pathways for students to meet those high expectations that we have for them. And so I think for those of us who are thinking about differentiated instructions or using instruction or using UDL as a, a lens for what effective instruction is, we want to start with helping educators to learn about how to create a culturally responsive classroom. And the last thing I would say is, how do we make sure that we are creating safe classrooms and safe hallways? And so whether it's creating a clear protocol for responding to a hate incident so that you're, you're messaging it in a way that demonstrate that these incidents are a violation of your, your core values as a, as a school, right? That communication is a critical step to, to rooting out hate in your school. To in the classroom, how are we making sure that all students feel safe? And an example that we use in the book is, you know, there was a practice where students would debate whether they should use the N-word in a book like Huckleberry Finn. And as a person of color, if I was one of the few black students in the class and the rest of the students are debating whether to use the N-word or not, that doesn't make me feel safe, right? It's not going to a lot of students feel safe regardless of their racial identity. And so how do we say that, you know, we're going to have open discussion, we're going to have open dialogue, but here are some things that we're not going to do, right? We're not going to use hate speech uh, in our language, in our, in our, in our, in our classroom. Those are clear ways that educators can create firm boundaries so that students feel safe, so that they can engage in those open discussions. And all of my mind always is like, yes, yes, and I'm head nodding. But how is sometimes harder, and especially in school systems that tend to move a little bit slower depending on the environment you're in. But, you know, as a leader, you set the tone and you are actually allowing the space. But you know, what if an educator doesn't have that support and they're working? And then also, even as a leader, how do you get consensus to say, here's what we believe in, here are our policies? I imagine that takes a lot of time too. Can you walk us through just like, how does this all get done? Do you have committees or, and then how do you empower the educators? And then if educators aren't empowered, I know those are lots of questions, but I'm just like, how does this all work in my head? Yeah, so I, I so... One concept that we, that we talk about is that there are many different branches in our work as educators. And so we need to choose one of them that we're going to lean into. So whether it's our personal work, whether it's our work with students, whether it's our work with our colleagues, how we interact with our colleagues, how we develop curriculum, policy making, like we shouldn't just, you know, dive into all of it. We need to choose like what, it, what is the area that we really want to work into? And that should, that decision should come out of some data. Of what your, of where are your biggest challenges? And so another concept that we talk about is using the cycle of inquiry as a way of thinking through your, your DEI work. So starting with learning and then doing some reflection based on what I'm learning. How do I, how does it impact my school? Then taking some sort of action, an action step and then assessing my work. So I'll give you an example. So we, you know, we learned 
that when I first started, that 25% of our students were on, were on IEPs, which was the state average in our state was 15%. And so when we dove even deeper, we found that 50%, 50% of our Black students were on IEPs, half. And so there was clear disproportionality, right? And what we saw as a, as a community was that, that there were many people who thought we were doing the right thing because IEP was the way that kids got support. Now, I always say that having a disability is not, nothing wrong with having a disability. What's wrong is saying that a student has a disability when they don't have a disability. And so we started with that data and we didn't go straight into an action. We wanted to have a discussion as a community. Where do we think this is coming from? And to learn where the cult community is in this really hard data point. We then, then formed a committee to start to think through, including a lot of our administrators to think through what are, you know, some, what are some steps that we can do, small steps that we can do to help, to help get in the way of our bias, which was the reason why so many of our black students were being identified for an IEP. Most of them were on, on an IEP for a behavioral disability. And it just in terms of thinking about how we create, set up our meetings, how do we check our bias in our meetings, right? That was led to a lot of conversations. So the, what I think the, to your question, what helped people get on board was seeing the data to recognize that students were being, were, were being harmed, right? And then recognizing that we are looking for their opinions on how we can make an improvement. And then some small steps. So how are we checking our bias in an, an IEP meeting? We also created you know, an accommodation plan. Here are some steps that teachers can take to support students when they're struggling in the class, right? That's another strategy that you can take. I think that it's certainly when you're a leader, like those are things that you should or you can help to foster a larger group to have that conversation. When you're a classroom teacher, and you notice these disparities, it can be really isolating. And so thinking about your own, your own classroom or how can you partner with some of your colleagues when you notice some of these, some of these disparities. So, and then taking small steps in your own classroom. Again, creating some, some sort of accommodation plan. We, we said that it was okay for you know, students to have preferential seating or extended time. Doesn't really, they don't have to have a, a disability in order to, to do that. Those should be strategies we're trying for all students. And when we sort of look through that lens, we'll, we'll see that there are some easy steps that you can take to meet the needs of your students. Yes. So that's really helpful because I'm like, how? How do you do it? But like, I love how you approach, let's look at what data is available and become informed as much as possible and let that fuel our curiosity. I feel, you know, there's the UDL component to it. There's design thinking from reminiscing of how do I become user-centric and what we're eventually designing. It even almost like PBL, what's my driving question based on real life situations and my users' needs. So I love you that you come in. Okay, now that we have actually more data than we've ever had before with the introduction of introduction of AI. Mm-hmm. I can have a tool in my classroom and know what percentage of my I'm speaking versus my students are speaking. And that alone is an eye-opening insight. And what types of students are speaking up? And, you know, even just becoming aware is a big step in the beginning, right? 
Absolutely. And just honing in on what is the data that you that you really want to look at, right? And and that's going to be useful for you. And I think that's, you know, I, I have found that educators get overwhelmed by the amount of data that they're seeing, right? But what are the questions that you're you're looking to answer and using that data to to inform? I also think that we because we're in a mission-driven field, as we were talking about earlier, I think that as teachers, we're, we are ready to just go right into action. And you know, a story that I remember is that this is a tech qu- a story, but we, were, we did, get, did some professional development on checking for understanding software. And we showed this, presented this, the software that we were going to ask people to use. And the next day, we see kids just walking through the hallways with their eyes sort of spinning. Because and we're like, what's going on? They're like, well, our teachers are asking us to use the software, you know, for us to answer questions. And so, like, every teacher did it the next day, right? And that's what who we are as educators. We see something that can work for kids, and we want to do it right away, not recognizing the consequences. And in DEI work, you know, that can actually get us into trouble if we learn something we want to do it the next day. We haven't thought about, you know, what are the potential consequences of this. And so taking a slow approach is the right is the right way. And so building a network of people who are going to, you know, try out a particular strategy, you know, what if it's instructionally focused, or are going to look into, you know, the if you're looking to diversify your books, looking at sort of a building a committee that's going to try out, you know, the different books that you're that you're going to use. Like that's the right way of scaling it so that there's some sort of reflection and then the action we have found to be the most useful. And then looking at the assessment, are you making sure that you're checking? Like, are we creating more harm or are we create or are we reducing harm by the action that we do? Yes. And as you were talking, I sometimes like to create parallels to the business world and lean startup methodology. Steve Blank came from Berkeley. I did a lot of classes with him and we talk about what are the unintended consequences that you may never think of? And that gets you to flip the problem because you get really excited and you get emotionally attached to what you're doing. You're like, yeah, this is going to be awesome. But then your users will flip it and go, oh, I didn't even think they'd use it that way. Or, oh, no, they're using it that way. And that's not, you know, so that what are the unintended uses or consequences of your product or what you're doing is, is really important that you were saying. So I just I want to say one thing to that. That, so we so we're we are taking the next several years look, reflecting on how to mitigate our bias and our grading practices. And so you know one way that has been discussed by a lot of writers is to is to reduce the impact of of homework because it's more of a compliance grade. And so you know teachers started to reduce the the grades that they give for homework, but what they found is that some students aren't going to do their homework because there isn't a grade, right? Like there's a consequence to it, even though if, even if your intent is, is good. And so it took a lot of time to think about what is the right balance so that we're getting students to do work that we feel like is essential and also to not harm them when, because it's, you know, or just grade them for, for compliance, but actually for their, what they're learning. And that ends up creating more questions to your point. And that's good. Because it's worked hard and it's always evolving. <laughs> There's yeah. no right one blanket answer for everyone as well. Agreed. So I, your book, it evokes a lot of questions, but it gives a lot of practical examples and strategies. And I love how you kind of say, here's what you can do as a leader. 
But here are also some things that you can do as a person, as an educator, and then your community at large too, with families. And, you know, we're all in this together. And we can't, if just one stakeholder in education is never going to move any needle forward. So I thank you for writing this book. For those that are interested, we'll put it in the show notes. It's called, again, Change the Narrative, How to Foster an Anti-Racist Culture in Your School. It is by Dave Burgess. Gosh, he has produced so many amazing books and helped get educator voices out there. And what website is it on again? Is it right? Is it on his Dave Burgess, but you can also get it on Amazon? People can get it on Amazon. Yep. They can also get it at DBC Inc. as well. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing about your book, Henry. I hope people buy it. I hope people look at it with that really inquisitive, curiosity-driven, I wonder, and what is the data that can help support this? And how can we start? It all, it just, the hardest part of this all is starting and then continuing when you hit some setbacks, because this isn't going to be easy. It's never easy, right? Agreed. Awesome. Thank you, Henry. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this week's episode. If you're interested in more in this topic and would love to dive a little bit deeper, you can read Henry's book. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Or you can get in touch with Henry on social media. He is at Turner, P-U-R-N-E-R-H-J on Twitter slash X and probably has the same handle. We'll put all of his socials and contact information as well in the show notes. Speaking of the show notes, they are located at leoniconsultinggroup.com. So that's L-E-O-N-I consulting, two Gs, so consultinggroup.com backslash 55. So just type in the number 55. We will see you next time on All Things Marketing and Education. Take care.